Hi, friend. Welcome back to The Everyday Evangelist. I'm Jessica Dudek, Director of Evangelization at Christ the King Catholic Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and this is your landing ground for practical tips and tools for sharing the faith in the day-to-day. Today, we're launching off a series called Acts in Action, where we're taking a look at the movement of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts and how that applies to evangelization today. To get started, let's think about Pentecost, and let's read the scripture. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rushing of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other language, in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one of them heard them speaking in the native language of their own. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of us in our own native language? In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it is impossible for him to be held in its power." This Jesus God raised up, and all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. Just dream with me for a moment about what it would be like if every time we prayed, come Holy Spirit, and asked the Holy Spirit to fill us, if 3,000 people came to know the Lord. I know I pray that prayer often just in my life. I want more of the Lord. I want an infilling of the Holy Spirit because I'm desiring that deep, close relationship with God. Also, I'm looking for purpose in my life and I want to know that the Lord is with me. But what we see here at Pentecost is that the movement of the Spirit is immediately accompanied by evangelization. So let's look at what happens. The Spirit comes 
and fills each of the disciples. And then their language is changed so that other people can hear the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. And there's so many things that are interesting about this, because first off, this is the opposite of the Tower of Babel, where man is trying to rise up and overtake God. And so the Lord has to confuse their languages so as to scatter them. This time, the Holy Spirit comes and creates a pathway of communication that formerly did not exist. The world is divided in sin and man is separate from one another and therefore also separate from God. And so the Holy Spirit comes and creates a place of unity. He diversifies their tongue, changes their message so that others may hear about God and be saved. So we look at the spirit here and the Holy Spirit knows who's in the space. He knows that there are devout Jews from all around. He knows they all speak different languages. And the first thing he does to reach them is he changes the disciples because you've got this small group of people who know to be praying and know to be seeking the Lord. And so first and foremost, God changes them. He fills them with his spirit, but immediately the fruit is that someone else can hear about the Lord. And then of course, Peter stands up. Peter, who the last time he was challenged on his faith, denied over and over again that he even knew Jesus Christ, now he's getting up and preaching to thousands of people about the gospel. This is a very different Peter than the Peter that we've seen in the scripture so far. I mean, Peter, the first time he encountered Jesus and saw Jesus' might, told Jesus to run away from him and to leave him alone. And the moment that Jesus told him that he was going to start the church, Peter immediately started contradicting Christ and combating him. And Jesus had to full-blown call him Satan. Peter stepped out in the water and got distracted and sunk. And then, you know, at the time of Jesus' death, multiple times denied he was related to him. So Peter is an incredible saint because he's so imperfect and so relatable. We see someone who over and over again really runs from Jesus, doesn't agree with Jesus, doesn't understand him, and publicly tries to avoid association with him, completely changes and becomes somebody who preaches the gospel with profound eloquence. Now, the Holy Spirit has changed him. He's changed his tongue so that those who don't even speak his language can hear him and know the message. But then he gets up with this profound boldness. And Peter does not hold back in his sharing of the gospel. He outright tells the Jews that they were responsible for crucifying Jesus. He doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He doesn't present the gospel as something light and fluffy, um, but he also doesn't get bogged down in guilt or blame, and he doesn't condemn the Jews for their actions. And this is probably because Peter recognizes his share of putting Jesus on the cross. He's a very repentant sinner. I mean, Jesus has to come to Peter and completely reestablish the relationship by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter responding, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. And Jesus saying, feed my lambs. 
Peter gets it. He knows what it's like to really not understand the Lord. He knows what it's like to be very responsible, to be an accomplice in his death. And he knows what it's like to receive that grace and to be reintroduced to a relationship with Jesus, to be received back. And so because of all of those experiences, the gospel that he's preaching is not just something that he's been told or something that he's heard before, but this is his lived experience. And so this is Jesus' story. This is God's plan of salvation. And it's also Peter's story because it's his testimony of how he's been shifted and changed. But before the coming of the Spirit, this was his lived experience and he sat in prayer And then when he's filled with the Spirit, he's emboldened, and he can't keep this message to himself. He desperately, deeply wants the world to know Jesus, and he tells them, repent and be saved. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. And 3,000 people are baptized. Just in one day, the scripture doesn't tell us how long he stood up and preached or how long that went down, but we know that it was first thing in the morning. And by the end of the passage, 3,000 people come to know the Lord. So there are several things to note here. First of all, we've talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit has changed the disciples. First and foremost, they're changed. And with that change, the Holy Spirit creates this pathway of communication between the people that didn't exist before. See, God knows how somebody else needs to hear the gospel and how they hear it may be different from how we need to hear it. Now, obviously in this circumstance, all these folks speak different languages. So the Holy Spirit had to give them a whole new language, but it is up to us today to let the Holy Spirit change us and give us the words that someone else can understand the message of truth. If we even consider temperament for a moment, some of us are more easily impacted and swayed by listening to our emotions. We kind of feel it in our gut first, and then the lineup of logic follows after. Other people are just the exact opposite. They kind of need the systematic approach or the intellectual understanding has to come first, and then their feelings catch up. And everybody actually needs both. People make the best decisions when their emotions and their logic come into alignment, but everybody has some way that they swing with that first. And so one example of how we change our language or how the Holy Spirit can change our language is that we have this opportunity in evangelization to pay attention to the temperament of the person we're talking to. And if they're very different from us, then we can show the Lord's grace to them by adapting our approach. And it's important to note that adapting the approach does not mean taking away any part of the message. Like we said, Peter actually is pretty harsh with the Jews. He tells them point blank, you crucified Jesus. Kind of a pitfall in evangelization is that we can tend to pendulum swing in intensity versus lightness. We can get these kind of 
pendulum swings between those who we call hate preachers versus those who share a very light and fluffy version of the gospel. Now, by the hate preachers, we've all seen those people who stand on street corners and yell to other people that they're going to hell. Well, that approach doesn't work. It's it's never worked and it probably never will work. I don't know anybody who's been converted to the love of Jesus by a total stranger yelling at them that they're going to hell. Well, there's so many things that are wrong about that approach. Uh, first of all, we don't actually have the right to condemn anybody and say that they're going to hell. We've never had that right. We never will have that right. Only Jesus gets to determine that. And actually, as Catholics, we believe that we send ourselves to hell. And so nobody has the freedom to say that to somebody else. And also, by only focusing on sin, we're not giving people a reason to repent. Sometimes I think in the less extreme versions, we get scared when we see people living in sin. And that's a good thing. You know, we should be afraid. We should want their salvation as much as we want our own. And so we might see somebody committing very grave sin and we're allowed to say that's wrong. It's important that we identify sin. It's not judging. It's not condemning. It's looking at an action and saying that action is causing harm. And when we see that and we desire their repentance, it is normal for some of us to kind of react out of that fear and we can come off heavy handed in how we share the gospel. And we can press and push for change in people before they're at a point of readiness for change. And this is dangerous because then we put ourselves in a position where we're more associated with the hate preachers. Now, we're not hate preachers. We're not. We get scared for someone's salvation and we don't want to waste a moment. We don't want to waste our breath. We, want, we feel that conviction that we have to tell them the truth. But if we press into sin too much without sharing the fullness of the gospel, like I said before, we're not giving people a reason to repent because the good news of salvation is what motivates our hearts to change. See, Peter presses in by talking about God, and then he talks about, you know, sin and how we put Jesus to death. And then he talks about the resurrection because of who God says he is and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So he gives this very holistic approach to sharing the gospel. A lot of Protestant spheres have specified the four laws of the gospel. You know, first of the first law is that God is love and he made the world through love. The next law is that we're damaged by sin, that by our own free will, we stepped out of the protective love of God and into patterns of sin and sin progresses into death. But the third law is that God loved us so much that even though we chose to run away from him and rush into sin, he decided to give us mercy instead. And Jesus became incarnate, became one with us, united to us, gave his life, took on that place of death that we were headed into, but rose again, reinstating an option for life between God and man. And the fourth law is that when we step into that, when we claim that truth, we're born again, and then we're sent through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to heal the world and bring others back to the Lord. 
And this is the exact format of what Peter gives. And it's so necessary that when we want to talk about sin, we want to talk about death, that we have to put it in context of God's love, God's goodness, and God's plan for redemption. Otherwise, we're setting up a standard for people that they can't fulfill. You know, if we tell them, oh, you're sinning and therefore you're going to go to hell. Well, that's not actually motivating. That's not motivational to change. People need the good news. They need to know what God offers instead. Because for those who don't know the Lord, up until the point of following Jesus, they found their comfort as little as it may be in the world. And so when we tell them it's sin, yes, it's sin and it's damaging, but they don't know that yet. For them, that's a support beam. And so if we remove the support beam without supplying something else, we're not actually setting them up for success. So, okay, I've gone on for a while now. That's one dangerous pendulum swing is that we only focus on sin and we don't bring the person around to the fullness of life in Christ. The other dangerous pendulum swing is when we talk about God's love and God's mercy, but we present it in such a way that we don't specify that there are any consequences of our actions. So things that are true, God is love, God is all merciful, He doesn't look at sin, and He forgives. Even the gravest of sins, He forgives. All of this is true about God, true to His heart, true to His character. But the mercy of Jesus is uh, not an excuse for us to not change. But actually, that would be like us taking advantage of a relationship, which means not a true relationship. And I think this is something that we maybe even understand in earthly terms better than we understand in supernatural terms. Because if two people are in a close relationship with one another... And the one person keeps doing things that hurts their partner, but they go back to their partner and they say, I'm sorry. And you know, you'll forgive me anyway. And the partner constantly forgives them. What you actually have is a pattern of abuse and enabling, you know, the one who's doing, committing the actions that are harming their partner. They're not actually sorry because if you're actually sorry, you change And the person who's forgiving them is just being drained of of their love and affection, and they're not being cared for. And so it's a completely broken, um, unhelpful, unhealthy cycle. And we recognize this between humans. But for some reason, we can miss the step in our minds that if we perpetuate in sin, then we're trying to take advantage of God's love and mercy. And then we're the, we're the abuser in the relationship in the same way that it's not a healthy relationship between two people. If we continue to do something that we know hurts the other, it's not going to work in a relationship with God. But these are also pretty harsh words to give to somebody. And I'm not necessarily recommending that you even say it as bluntly as I did just now. I think the approach to take instead is to consider holistic discipleship. You know, the cold, hard fact is that sin kills us. And so 
While we never want to have to tell somebody that something they're doing is wrong or harmful, I once had someone challenge me when I was really struggling because I had a friend who was uh, just living in a pattern that was very unhealthy in regards to our sexual relationships. And I didn't know how to tell her. I was so young, so new to this and just very uncomfortable. And I knew how much she, you know, loved her boyfriend and all of that. And I didn't know how to have this conversation. And another friend challenged me on it. She said, well, do you care more about your friend or about the friendship? Because I was afraid that the other friend was, you know, going to step away from a friendship with me if I told her really what I was seeing. And I was very challenged by that to consider in that moment that if I see somebody in a pattern of sin it might cost, you know, the friendship. It might be something where they don't want to be with me anymore. Um, but I would be neglecting giving care to my friend. So, you know, metaphors are are often helpful in this. Um, if your friend is drinking poison, you have to tell them. You know, otherwise they die and, and that's on you. If your friend is drinking poison, you wouldn't sit back and say, well, it's going to offend them if I tell them that they're drinking poison because, you know, it's their choice. And you know what? God is just forgiving and God's just going to heal their body anyway. That doesn't help it, actually. (laughs) You're just setting them up for um, a failed pattern. So really, we're stepping away from the holistic nature of discipleship when we don't appropriately guide somebody. Um, into life. But let's consider again how people receive this message. Again, the Holy Spirit changed the apostles' language. He changed their tongue. So in the same way that we can pendulum swing unhelpfully between preaching too harshly or not preaching at all, most of us also usually have a go-to where some of us are inclined a little bit more towards rebuke, um, and others of us are inclined towards a more encouraging approach. But pay attention to your inclination. And I'm going to say that when in doubt, try the opposite first. When in doubt, obviously ask the Holy Spirit to come upon you and give you wisdom. But if you're less inclined to correct somebody, that could mean that you could be running from an opportunity where somebody needs a holy rebuke. Whereas if the fear of their sin urges you towards a rebuke, pay attention, avoid your knee-jerk reaction and adapt with encouragement into truth first. You know, rebuke is best received inside a trusting relationship. And trust is delicate because that's something that can be very easily broken. So another way that we need to pay attention to how other people need to hear the gospel is to keep our finger on the pulse of where they are in their spiritual journey. Right before this series on the podcast, we wrapped up a series on the conversion journey. So if you haven't had a chance to take a listen, I encourage you to go back and listen. And we talk through how people go from not having a relationship with Christ at all into being believers. And there's five very clear stages from trusting a Christian, being spiritually curious, having their heart shift to be open to change, truly seeking Jesus, and then coming to that point of conversion. Now, the Jews at the time of Pentecost 
as Jewish folk, they were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. They were uh, learned people who knew the the background, knew the prophecies. And so for Peter to preach the gospel, they really had a very strong context for understanding this. And so they were at a point of readiness to receive the truth. And in our lives, we're going to have people who have been searching for Jesus. They've been looking for him. And so when we preach the gospel, they're ready to hear it. But other people might not be. Um, Actually, a lot of other people aren't ready because something in them hasn't become open to the idea that there could be something more. And so we have to journey and we have to be patient with them in this. But I want to stress that patiently waiting for somebody and patiently journeying is not separate from holy boldness. Patience is similar to how strength is known in gentleness. Patience is really profound determination. It is believing, waiting, and hoping for someone's conversion, even when there aren't very many signs that it's coming soon. Patience puts a great deal of trust in God um, and actually puts a lot of trust in the other person as well. All right, kind of changing tracks here. Another thing I want to press about what happens at Pentecost is the partnership between Peter and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit descends, fills Peter, um, inspires others as they begin to hear the scripture, kind of sparks this curiosity in them. But then Peter takes the step. He gets outside of himself, outside of his comfort zone, and he preaches the gospel. See, the Lord is the one who changes our hearts, but yet he calls upon us to partner with him and be and enter into his plan of salvation. And we may wonder why, you know, why doesn't the Holy Spirit just move on his own? And why doesn't the Holy Spirit just do all the work? Well, I think there's many reasons why. And part of it is because God called us to each other. You know, he creates community. He created family and he made our lives so that we would know him and know one another, so that we would love God and love one another. This is the greatest of the commandments. This is the fullness of what God intended on earth. So he chooses to partner with us. But it's also gives this incredible statement of what God thinks of us, that he would call us to do his bidding. And what I mean by that is when we look at this moment in Pentecost and we look at the birth of the church, it follows this fascinating pattern that we see throughout scripture that plays into God's plan of salvation. See, at in Genesis, the creation of the world, the spirit hovered over the waters and then God speaks the word and he says, let there be light and the world is formed. And in that, we know that God actually intended eternal life for people. So that word of let there be light, he's speaking, let there be life, let there be eternal life. And then, you know, we fall into sin and we turn from the Lord. And so Jesus comes and is incarnate. And the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. 
which is similar to creation. The spirit hovers over the water. Now the spirit is going to hover over Mary, overshadow her. And she speaks the word. She says, let it be done to me according to your word. And Jesus is incarnate. And now by that proclamation of that word, life, the bridge of eternal life has been rebuilt in a sense. And now the spirit descends like fire over the disciples and Peter gets up and he preaches the word. He shares the gospel and the church is born. 3000 are baptized and enter back into eternal life. This is so fascinating. It's so cool. The spirit moves, the word is spoken, and life, eternal life is established. And God wants us to take part in preaching the word. He can move on his own. He made the heavens and earth with his own word. But now for us, he calls us to proclaim and preach the word. And the result is life. The result is eternal life life. So friend, preach the word. Pray for the Holy Spirit to come, to descend upon you, to fill your life and to change you. We have to let ourselves be humble before the Lord. This is what the disciples were. They humbly let the Spirit change them. And then in boldness from that change, stepped out and brought so many people to know the Lord. And friend, all of us today have a relationship with Jesus because of this moment. I mean, what would have happened at Pentecost if the disciples stayed quiet, if the Holy Spirit fell and they said, that's awesome. I love the Holy Spirit and just had a private little prayer meeting. That's not what happened. Instead, they got up and they proclaimed the truth to the whole, to everyone who could hear and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, it's because Peter stood up and preached the word. And so all of us are called into this mission of life, into the mission of eternal life with God, that he wants us to be filled with his spirit and then to take part and do his bidding and preach the word. And right now, our world is probably just as divided as it was for the disciples then. And, you know, we're, we're divided across lines of believer and non-believer. We're also divided within the church. And so much so that we often don't even know what we're supposed to preach. But the truth will always set us free. And only on the foundation of the gospel can we find unity. There is no unity apart from truth. So what do we preach? What's the word? The word is the gospel message. It's from acceptance of the gospel and reception of the spirit that we are humbly changed. And so only, only in coming together on the truth of the gospel, can we have any hope for unity in this world. But so the Holy Spirit, he knows our divisions and he knows how other people need to hear the word of God. And so it's up to us to invite the Holy Spirit to change us. It's the invitation for us to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, come and change me. Change my words so that other people may come to know you, come to know you and come to know Jesus. But then it's up to us to speak. It's up to us to step out, to show love and to give love to the world so that they may know the love and the saving power of Christ. Now is the time 
to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and equip you. He will give you the words that others can understand. He will cut to the heart of those who don't yet know Jesus, and He will gladly partner with you in the work of salvation. In all things, lean on the Lord and be led by the Spirit. Amen.